Hello and welcome to Running Through History with Coach Henserling. Um, what we're going to take a look at in this podcast is the origins of the Industrial Re- Revolution. The Industrial Revolution is a huge turning point in world history, and I would argue in some instances that we're still going through it. I mean, anytime that you flip on a light switch, anytime that you listen to music, you watch a movie, you'll get a TV show, you drive a car, you have the Industrial Revolution to thank for that, all right? So we're not going to look at the Industrial Revolution itself in this podcast, but I'm going to talk about the origins of it. Because the Industrial Revolution, it didn't just, you know, somebody didn't just snap their fingers and wake up one day and say, ha ha, I have all these ideas. No, it really is going to be um, about a 300-year period of time that occurred after the Middle Ages. If you guys remember the Middle Ages, kind of the dark ages of European history from 500 to 1400, that after that, there's this period of time from the 1400s to the 1700s where... It was a super exciting um, period of time. One of my favorite periods of, t- of times to talk about where people started thinking. They, they didn't just rely on the ancient philosophers. They didn't just rely on the church for their knowledge. They started thinking for themselves. And people started to think about politics. They started to think about how the world operated, how it looked, how the universe, how the laws of the, of the universe operated. They started to think about religion. They started thinking about the relationship to each other. Like it really was a, a very exciting period of time where a lot of, of changes are going to take place. Um, and that is going to be what gets us to um, the Industrial Revolution in the 1700s. All right, so what I'm eventually going to get to in this podcast is how the scientific revolution that started really in the 1500s with Copernicus, how that revolution and the Enlightenment, how those two um, events in world history are going to get us to the Industrial Revolution. But before we even jump into that, I feel like I need to tell you, how do we even get to the scientific revolution? Because that really is going to be a big precursor for the Industrial Revolution revolution. So two things that I want to talk about. If we think about science um, in the age of, 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 of the dark ages, the middle ages, science really wasn't even a word. Okay. Science wasn't even, even really a, a, a word. Science was basically a branch of religion. The explanation of the universe was basically, um, it was based on scripture um, where the church, the Catholic church got all their ideas about how the world um, looked and how it operated all came from the ancient philosophers, from Aristotle, from Ptolemy, all those different people. And so there was a belief um, that the earth was flat. Um, the Catholic church has a, had a belief that the earth w- was the center of the universe. So for the Middle Ages, it really, it was an age of faith, like blind faith, that you just believe whatever the Catholic Church told you. And scientific speculation was not popular at all. It was frowned upon. The church had their story of how the earth looked. They had their story of the universe. They had their story of creation, um, how the world came about. They had their story of the purpose of, 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 of people. So why should people pursue science, the science that we know of today? Um, why should they pursue science if the Bible had all the answers, if the Catholic Church had all the answers? So to pursue science and to challenge 
um, the views of the Catholic Church was, I mean, you're a heretic. You just didn't do that. So the two events that are going to change that, they get us to the scientific revolution um, and the Enlightenment are, first and foremost, the Age of Exploration. Christopher Columbus, you guys, sailed the ocean blue, and guess what? He did not fall off the face of the earth. So one of the things that people started to think about with Christopher Columbus, if the earth is in fact not flat, what else was the church wrong about? So that got people thinking um, about that, because when those explorers went over to the quote-unquote new world, they learned about animals and plants and people that the Catholic Church had never heard of before, never before in their life. So what else did people not know? What else did the church not know about? So that is going to to encourage people. And then the second thing that is another, I would say, a huge reason for the scientific revolution is the Protestant Reformation. When Martin Luther um, challenges the church's teachings, when he looked at at the Catholic Church and he looked at, at their practices, um, such as the selling of indulgences, among other things. I mean, he had a lot of issues with the Catholic Church, 95 of them, if you think of it in that way. Um, really disagreeing with the church's practices. And he's a priest, you know, he is a, a German monk, a German priest, and he is going to to challenge the practices of, of the church, um, which was a really big deal. So if you think about that tie between science and, and the church, um, there is a direct connection there because once Martin Luther started to challenge the church's teaching and religion, that is going to give um, some of the early scientists like Copernicus the 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 guts to basically challenge the church in terms of their teachings about science and so that really is the is the connection between between those two and i would say that the the protestant reformation it's not only going to be about you know the challenge of the church in terms of science um but it's also going to give you know, people have the courage to stand up and to look at things that they believe in society are wrong. So it also is going to pave the way for the Enlightenment and for people like John Locke to to really look at the inadequacies of social of, of institutions in society like absolutism. Um, like the role of the church and the connection to politics, um, like bigotry, like anti-Semitism, to look at these things and to, and to speak and to write. Um, because to me, I mean, this is a pretty tumultuous period of time. There's going to be a lot of angst and a lot of division. So when you think about the Protestant Reformation, one of the things that's going to happen is it just blows people's minds in terms of, of religion. You know, it leads to a massive split in the in the church. And after the Protestant Reformation, for almost a hundred years, Europe is going to be at war because of religion. Um, so this is a, a humongous, you know, period of anxiety for people. But it is also, in hindsight, when we look at it, exciting because it leads to this new intellectual climate where people can, you know look at, at at institutions of society and say, just because this is how things have always been done doesn't mean that it's right. Just because France has had an estate system 
um, where you're born into this estate and you stay in this estate and the third estate is treated terribly, they're overtaxed, oppressed, overworked, terrible food, doesn't mean that that's how France should always be. Just because there's been an absolute monarch in charge of, of Russia or Prussia doesn't mean that that is how things should, should, should stay. Okay, so it really is a, a, an age of of um, of curiosity, especially for not just politics, as I as I as I mentioned, but also for some of these quote unquote scientists that are going to come about during the scientific revolution to think for themselves, to kind of reject. I mean, you know, let's kind of take a look at what Aristotle said. Let's take a look at what Ptolemy said and let's try to prove them right or wrong. So not just having this blind faith. Let's think for ourselves and let's see what happens. So it's, it's, it's again, a lot of anxiety for a lot of people, but it's also a pretty exciting time for, for a lot of people because a lot of these philosophers of the scientific revolution and a lot of the philosophers of the Enlightenment truly believe that things could be better, that we could understand the universe in a better way, that government could be for people, um, that the church didn't have to play such a big role um, in politics. Um, so it is going to be, in the end, a, a very a very exciting time. Okay, so... When we look at the age of exploration, Christopher Columbus and then the Protestant Re- Reformation, again, what those two events did is they gave way to what is known as the scientific revolution. And so this is going to be one of the biggest precursors to the industrial revolution. Because what those scientists, those early scientists like Copernicus and Isaac Newton and Rene Descartes, what these men are going to do is they are going to kind of break with the past. They aren't just going to, you know, believe exactly what it is that the church has taught for so long, such as the earth being the center of the universe. So rather than to kind of accept the teachings of the Catholic church, um, they are going to explore the world. They are going to, to, to come to their own conclusions after investigating um, and ob- observing and experimenting um, about theories that they have about how the earth operates, about how the, the, the natural laws that govern the universe. So it's a really, 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 again, exciting period of, of time. Many historians will say that the scientific revolution began with Copernicus. Um, I would probably agree with that. He um, is going to be in the 1500s. And so the biggest thing that Copernicus is going to contribute to the scientific revolution is he challenged that geocentric view of the universe that the earth was a center of the universe. He, Nicholas Nicholas. Copernicus, he actually was a Polish priest. He called himself an astronomer, but he was kind of a naked eye astronomer because he literally was just observing the heavens. Um, so a lot of these early scientists, maybe wouldn't necessarily call themselves scientists at the time, maybe more philosophers or, or mathematicians or what have you. Um, he really, just by observing the heavens, thought that the Ptolemaic, um, which is the geocentric view of 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 the world was just too complicated, too complex, and he thought that there be, had to be a better system mathematically. Like it just didn't mathematically make sense to him. 
So he wrote what was called um, On the Revolutions of Heavenly Spears, which challenged the Ptolemaic system of the universe, geocentrism, um, and said that it wasn't the earth that was the center of the universe. It was actually the sun. And, and I mentioned him obviously because he's super important to the scientific revolution, but I also mention him because of what I've been talking about in terms of, of these scientists challenging the church, because this was a really big deal. So he wrote this, but he was afraid to publish his theories because of it would mean that he was basically a heretic. So he actually didn't publish these until he was on his deathbed. Galileo is going to come along, and he is going to invent the telescope, and he is literally going to, through observation, prove what Copernicus believed about about the Earth, that the sun was the center, not the Earth, that the universe, um, that the sun was the center of the universe, not the, not the Earth. And he publicly defended Copernicus. He wrote about it too. And so what Copernicus was afraid of actually happened to Galileo, where he is, Galileo is going to be charged as a heretic. He's put under house arrest during the, the Inquisition, and that's where he's going to die. So I just wanted to for you to understand how big of a deal this was for these early philosophers, these scientists, to to kind of break with the teachings of the Catholic Church, which was such a dominant force in um, in everybody's life, political, social, economic, um, obviously religious life of, of of Europe at this at this point in time. But two other men in particular um, to talk about, just in terms of of what this meant, of what the scientific re- revolution meant. Um, one of them is going to be Rene Descartes. Um, and basically what he believed in was what was called rationalism or what is called de- deduction. Um, and basically what he wanted to do is to kind of start from scratch. He He's a guy that said, I think, therefore I am. So wait, he's very, very, very skeptical. And to basically to doubt everything. Um, and to start from that one fact, and that fact is, I am doubting. And then you proceed from there. And so one of the things he, he kind of said is, you know, I doubt myself. And then he deduced from there, I think, therefore I am. Um, which is very, very, again, he's, he's a big, he's a big ske- skeptic. But what he did is he really kind of developed the scientific method, which is a, a way to solve problems um, in science that requires the scientist to break down the problem into the smallest parts. That a scientist must examine every idea, every theory, and throw out any ideas, any theories that they cannot prove for absolute certain to be true. Okay? Or that actually maybe have a really complicated explanation. Um, so he wanted scientists to basically come down to one basic truth that can be proven and then mathematically build from there. So again, it's, it's, it's breaking down problems to the smallest parts, the smallest bits, and then building from there. And later on during the, uh, during the industrial revolution, that theory is actually going to be used in organizing work in factories. So there's a direct correlation between how the factory system during the Industrial Re- Revolution is going to be organized and how Descartes, his approach to solving problems. Um, another scientist is Isaac Newton, and he's going to be pretty influential, um, not just in the scientific revolution, but also with the Industrial Revolution. He would call himself a, math- a mathematician and a physicist, um, and he is a guy who really wanted to use very detailed measurements to try to understand the natural laws of the world, in particular with physics. Um, 
And so he encouraged scientists to really begin to focus on understanding natural laws by taking careful, careful, careful measurements and conducting experiments to test their theories. So basically for all these guys, like really proving knowledge, not just taking something at blind faith, not just saying, oh, this is what the Catholic Church has said. This is how things have always been. No, that they're going to try to break it down through experimentation, observation, and try to prove um, these theories to be true. So in the Industrial Revolution, some of these newly discovered natural laws that maybe can come from Isaac Newton or Galileo or other scientists um, are used to to uh, configure some of the new machines of the Industrial Revolution. For example, um, one of the biggest inventions of the Industrial Revolution Revolution. There was a big transformation in terms of of power. Was steam, and so the example is, you know, when water is heated to two hundred and twelve degrees Fahrenheit, it becomes steam. And so, any given amount of water, when converted to steam, um, can basically that. I mean, that's that's how they they eventually going to put this into into the into the engine. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. And so that's how going to be. That's the that's how the steam engine is going to be invented. Um, so over time, so with you know all the scientific discoveries that were made during the scientific revolution, um, scientists during the industrial revolution are going to use it to transform how economies work, how power works, um, and so they're going to build off 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 that. But it's not just going to be that, you guys. It's not just like the literal science and the literal experimentation and observation and measurements and stuff like that. It's just really, it's an attitude that is going to change to where individuals during the Industrial Revolution felt powerful and that they could um, affect the world. That through their experimentation, through their observation, and later on with these industrialists, like really feel through study and observation and effort that they can make some um, some big changes. It permitted people to tinker. I mean, if you think about, you know, here about our maker spaces and, and tinkering spaces, like it really gave people the confidence to just tinker with things. Um, so that is going to, to be how the scientific revolution um plays into the industrial revolution um, and why there's going to be so many technological breakthroughs during that time period because people started again the just the attitude the willingness to investigate their ability to use these new scientific methods um, really thinking about not necessarily what but why all these things are, are are happening really changes people's attitudes and so that's going to be key during the industrial revolution. So the last thing I want us to, for you guys to, to know is how the enlightenment is going to um, impact the industrial revolution. I know you guys talked about this at the end of freshman year, um, but I feel like it's, it's worth um, mentioning here again. So if you remember, the enlightenment was a, it was a period of time in which many intellectuals who were called philosophers began to question the traditions of society and to really look at the universe in a very scientific, critical light. So kind of learning what um, the, 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 the people of the scientific revolution and the reformation, you know, Martin Luther and their critical thinking, that's what they wanted to do was to apply the science, um, 
of that time period to really take a look at different institutions in society. Um, some of it were, was, you know, in particular a reaction to how the government operated at the time. Um, we've talked about absolutism, and that was the, with the exception of England, um, all countries in Europe were basically absolute. And within that, that absolute government, if you remember, that they can totally control everything. So not only is about there's a lack of freedom in terms of politics, there's a lack of freedom in society, a lack of freedom when it comes to religion. So what these philosophers of the Enlightenment wanted to do is they had this common desire to reform those things, all for the sake of human liberty. They had a very positive outlook on society. They truly believed that society needed to be reformed and that it could be reformed. So again, kind of like what I said about the Reformation and the scientific revolution, like this was really was, there's a lot of conflict. Once these philosophers started to write about this stuff, I mean, there was, there was a lot of, um, of trouble for them, of danger for them. I mean, Voltaire is going to be kicked out of, of, of France. So there, a lot of what these guys were writing about wasn't something that people just automatically opened up to and were like, yes, this is what we should do because it's completely transforming hundreds of years of how these countries have, um, like France has operated as an absolute country and these nobles and the church have had these certain rights and privileges. And now all of a sudden these philosophers are coming in and saying, this isn't right. Um, so there's a lot of anxiety and a lot of conflict, but again, I can't stress enough that for these philosophers, they truly believed that, that things could be better. Um, and they wanted things to be better for the sake of, of human beings, of human liberty, um, throughout these nations in Europe. I would say John Locke is going to be a huge influence. He's a big part of the enlightenment, but I would say in terms of, of influencing all these political writers, these political uh, philosophers, John Locke is going to be the most influential. Because he started writing um, 1688. I know you guys learned this last year in American history. The Glorious Revolution in England, where England, for the last time, fought about... Are they going to be an absolute monarch or are they going to be a parliamentary democracy? And after the Glorious Revolution, England moved away from being a an absolute monarch for the last time ever. And so one of the things that John Locke started to write about around 1690 is about how government must be both responsible for and responsive to the concerns of the governed. Like John Locke literally believed, if you think about the tabula Raza, that blank slate idea that all people are born with uh, white sheets of paper. Um, and what that means is that all people are born equal. Like everybody at birth is the same. So because all people are born equal, and he also believed that all, all people are creatures of reason and that they were basically good um, and that human beings could live in a society peacefully together, which is something that an absolutist, um, a pro-absolute person might argue, like Thomas Hobbes. I don't know if you remember his name. He was a guy who argued that all of people are, are essentially evil um, and they have to have one person. You have to give all your power to this one person because if you don't, um, if you don't give all your power to this absolute king or queen, then you're just going to live this life of death and misery because people are inherently selfish and evil and they're going to do whatever it is that they want to do. Whereas John Locke did not believe that. That you, the point of the government is to look out for um, the people and be responsive to their needs. 
And so he got people talking um, about politics, and he's going to influence people like Voltaire, who also believed in the English system of government, um, and who also reje- rejected what he considered to be, Voltaire considered to be the, vi- the bigotry of the Catholic Church. So these philosophers are going to be very important in getting people thinking, and that's what they wanted to do. What these guys did is they wrote. They communicated through books, pamphlets, plays, novels, encyclopedias, newspapers, magazines. Like, they literally just wanted, they were asking critical questions of society, and they wanted others to do so, to ask questions about, you know, is the estate system, is that what is right for France? Should the peasants be taxed the most? Should there be serfs, which are basically, um, um, you know, legally, it's a legally sanctioned state of servitude, almost like a slave. So should these things continue just because it's been, it's been this way for a long time doesn't mean that it should continue in that way. So it's going to be these, these writers of the enlightenment who are going to, to really inspire some political changes. Um, obviously we already talked about it, about, about England with the glorious revolution and and England continuing to develop the ideas of how a a truly democratic society should look. Um, And those Enlightenment thinkers are going to inspire changes in France. I mean, it's their their ideology that leads to the French Revolution. And it's also the ideology of the Enlightenment that actually led to the American Revolution um, and the Haitian Revolution, which we'll eventually talk about. So they really are, are going to to um, to write about politics and inspire political change. Okay, so how does this tie into the industrial re- revolution? By getting people talking and making changes in terms of how governments operate, and in turn, if you think about you know how governments operate, also impacts society. It also impacts the economy. That once governments start to make a transition from absolutism to more democratic, um, those governments are a little bit more, I guess, what what, what you would call predictable. Um, because these Enlightenment thinkers advocated for governments that were based on reason, and based on the consent of the governed. Again, a democracy. Um, where a majority of the people who live in these places, they vote to determine the government. And they might influence public policy. So a big part of the Industrial Revolution was the willingness of some of the wealthier people to take their money and invest it in ideas. Whether it's ideas um, like like the textile industry of you know, investing in in um, in some of the earlier inventions to get cotton to a very durable fabric, um, investing into machines like steam engines and mass producing those and putting them into trains and putting them into 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 boats, investing their money into factories. So just taking their money and investing it in ideas. Um, and so what historians would argue is that if there was an unpredictable political environment, an unpredictable political situation, um, 
you know, for instance, maybe a danger of the king shutting you down or taking your money, seizing the ideas of not allowing for this progress that could would probably happen under an absolute um, government that the that the enlightenment changed politics. I mean, not immediately. Again, this is not immediately because the Glorious Revolution was in 1688. And y'all, our revolution, American, was in the 1700s, late 1700s, 1770s. And the French Revolution was seventeen late 1780s. It started in 1789. So this isn't an immediate thing, okay? But it is going to be, people are going to be more motivated to invest their money, more motivated to tinker. If you go back to what we said about the scientific revolution, more motivated to be creative um, and to take risk. Where if you're living in a country like France in the early 1700s where it's absolute and you're in that third estate, how motivated are you to to tinker and to and to try to invent new things? You're not because you're in the third estate and it's your birth that matters no matter what you do you're still going to be in that third estate and you're not going to have a voice in government you're going to be overtaxed you're going to be oppressed so there's not really a motivation there so that really is the is the connection between the enlightenment and the industrial revolution so if you kind of see a theme here y'all is is with all these things with whether it's the reformation whether it's the scientific revolution, whether it's the Enlightenment, is people are thinking. It's a new intellectual climate where people feel motivated to ask questions, to think critically, and to tinker, and to invest money, okay? And so that is is where the industrial revolution is going to, to come from. And so what we're going to take a look at in class is where it all starts. Because where this all is going to start, you can probably guess it if you think about what I just said. Um, of having to have a, polit- a stable political environment, the Industrial Re- Revolution is going to start in England. And it is almost specifically because of their political, of, of their um, stable political system. There are other factors that we'll talk about, that we will argue about, and, we, and that we will discuss. Um, but that's going to be a big reason why the Industrial Revolution starts in England in the early 1700s. So that's what we're going to take a look at. Um, so thank you for listening to this latest episode of Running Through History, where I hope, again, um, you've been encouraged in some way, shape, or form. Maybe it's just to think. Maybe it's to tinker. Maybe it's to take a risk. Um, maybe it's to think about the country that we live in and the freedom that we have to, um, to do these things. All right. So that is it for this episode of Running Through History. Thanks for listening.